take a, your Bibles, like I said, we're going to be in Psalm 139, and we're going to get there. It'll be a couple of minutes, but we'll get there and uh, talk this morning a little bit about fear. Last week we talked about fear, and we talked really in talking about fear about generally about life when storms kind of hit and how that fear can take our focus and our attention off of our Savior in the midst of those storms that are raging. And over the next few weeks, what we're really going to do is kind of take some specific fears that we all may encounter, that we all might have to deal with in our lives, and talk about what Scripture says about how we can face those fears and move on to a future that involves living for the glory of the kingdom, uh, for the glory of God and furthering His kingdom on earth. Anybody know who Edwin Hubble is? A couple of you out there. Anybody ever heard of the Hubble Telescope? How many of you heard of that? Who do you think, what do you think the Hubble Telescope was named after? Edwin Hubble, right? Isn't it good when the teacher gives you the answer before they ask the question? Edwin Hubble was a guy that kind of blew the mind of some uh, scientist of his day. You see, before Edwin Hubble, in the early 1920s, when he kind of gave his theory, uh, most scientists, most astronomers, most guys felt that we could see all that there is. That if you got out on a clear night and you could walk out into a field and you could stare up into the sky, that the lights that you saw, the stars that you saw, they believed that you could see all that there is. Well, Edwin Hubble came along in the 1920s, in 1929, put this theory out that said, no, what you see is not all there is. There is more that you cannot see. And as most of the time when new scientific theories are given, they uh, just kind of pushed it to the side and said, well, I don't, we don't know. And slowly but surely, evidence started to mouth that he was right. That's why when NASA put a telescope out into space to get past our atmosphere where it could see farther than we'd ever seen before, they named the telescope the Hubble Telescope because that telescope began to show us more things that we had never seen. And as the telescope and as our ability to see farther and farther into space has occurred, what we have discovered is that we live on a very tiny speck in a huge ocean of a universe. We've talked about before that they measure these in millions of light years, billions of light years. And as each new discovery, I saw they made a couple of discoveries this week that they talked about, showed different solar systems and galaxies and stars and supernovas and black holes and all of those kind of things. It reminds us again and again of how huge this universe is. Think about Psalm 8 when the psalmist says, When I look into the sky, when I see the handiwork of you, I think, What is man that you are mindful of him? You see, it led people when you look and gaze into all of that stuff. It leads people like Stephen Hawking to say things like this, that we are insignificant creatures on a minor planet of an average star in the outer suburbs of one of 100,000 million galaxies. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? No, that's why you're excited you came to church today. Thank you, Pastor, for cheering us up with that. We're just a speck. And he said that it's difficult to believe God would care about us or even notice our existence. One of the most common fears known to man is the fear of not mattering, of being completely insignificant. 
And as you look at the vastness of the universe and you realize that we are but a speck on the seashore of an ocean that is more immense than we could ever imagine, it would be real easy to begin to think we are insignificant, unimportant, inconsequential, that we just evaporate and leave no trace of who we are. That in the final tabulation, we leave no credible evidence that we were here. That's why we do certain things to try to make it seem like we have significance. That's why when we're talking to people, sometimes we'll drop names of people that we know. That's why you still wear that class ring or desire affirmation or people put flashy hubcaps or grills on their teeth or wear fancy silk purple ties, you know. Some of you are impressed I got a tie on today. It was just for the sermon illustration. That's it. But we do those kind of things because we want to feel like we're important. And people, some people just live louder. They draw attention to themselves. I may be insignificant, but I want you to know how insignificant I am. Right? Some people just dress nicer. We, we see on TV that designers are telling us if we'll wear their label or their emblem that'll make us more important. And we go out and spend half a month's salary on clothing and then the styles change the next week. We align ourselves with superstars and feel like that because the celebrities or the stars have gained some sort of significance that our connection to them makes us somehow more significant. You know, you overhear strange conversations in the grocery store line sometimes, right? I was in line a couple of days ago and we were rearranging rooms and I was buying some nails to put letters up on a wall and I was just in line, you know, no, nothing big, just in line waiting. And I don't eavesdrop in line, but some people's conversations, naturally you hear because I think they want everybody around to hear. And so these two people were talking, and they, they got to talking about Patrick Swayze passing away. And I'm not saying Patrick Swayze good, bad, and different, but the conversation was interesting because this guy who was probably in his early 20s said, and I was the first to know. And I thought, what? You were not the Patrick's family did not call you. And he said, you know, and this is what he said. He said, you know how dad always knows everything first? I told him. Now, he said, I'm not glad that he died, but I was first to know. Like that somehow gave him significance in life. Now, another way we do this is through our sports teams. Y'all know I'm a Tennessee fan and uh, never felt so good after losing by 10 as I did yesterday, but... My first love is baseball. Growing up, my first love was always baseball. It was the only sport I could play decently well. I played it as, as long as I could play it until they started throwing pitches I couldn't hit. Um, loved the game. And from the time I was born, I was a Cardinals fan. That's just where I grew up. My, it was a family kind of thing. It's kind of interesting. My, great, my grandfather grew up in Nebraska. He was a Cardinals fan. Everybody around him was a Cardinals fan. My dad grew up a Cardinals fan, moved to West Tennessee. Everybody in West Tennessee is a Cardinals fan because we didn't have teams around. And so we were just Cardinals fans. And I have, you know, I, I mean, I've followed the Cardinals all my life. We would spend our family vacations, would often be going and just taking a weekend and going up on Friday afternoon, watching the Friday night game, the Saturday afternoon game, the Sunday afternoon game, and coming home. We'd spend the weekend. That was our family vacation. I had two parents that were factory workers, and that's what we did. And so I love the St. Louis Cardinals. And so I want people to know how much I like the Cardinals, right? So I got all the gear. I got golf balls with Cardinal logo on it. I got baseball bats with Cardinal logo on it. I just got my closet today. I've got a polo shirt. 
with the St. Louis logo on it. There it is. It's on there. When they won the National League Division Series in 06, I went out and bought the shirt that said they won the Division Series in 06. And uh, I got a hat because you always got to have a hat for your team, right? And then in 2006, something happened. I've been fortunate that twice in my life the Cardinals have won the World Series. Now, I really feel for Cubs fans, Astros fans that never get to experience that. But the Cardinals have won a couple of times, right? And in 2006, the Cardinals entered the playoffs as what was, quote, the worst playoff team in baseball history. And then they just started to win. And in 2006, we had a a three-and-a-half-month-old child. In those um, World Series games, they now start them, I think, at 11 o'clock at night. You know, they start them late, 7, 8 o'clock, and so they don't end till late in the night. And I was under strict orders to not wake up the baby. Right? Any of your parents ever been there? Three and a half months old. If the baby's asleep and you do anything to wake the baby, you not only get the wrath of the baby, it's your job to put the baby back to sleep. And so as the Cardinals are winning the World Series, I have three people in my house asleep, my wife and my two boys, including my youngest now, Luke, who was three and a half months old. And I remember sitting at the television, and as they're winning this thing, almost in disbelief, I'm screaming without making a noise. Right? And they go on and they win the championship. I didn't have Twitter. I didn't have Facebook and all that. So one of the things I did is I got online almost immediately and ordered the World Series Champs sweatshirt that I still wear. And I went to work the next day. I didn't have Twitter. I didn't have Facebook, so I couldn't put it on there immediately. I went to work the next day, and I walked in, and I said, guess what? We did it. We won the World Series. Now, what's strange about that? I was sitting in Tennessee. The game was in St. Louis. I had absolutely nothing to do with them winning the game. I didn't throw a pitch. I didn't hit a ball. I didn't give them Gatorade. I would have if they wanted to, but apparently they didn't know that I would like to do that because they've never asked. I had absolutely nothing. Now, unless you count the fact that if I sat in a certain seat with my mouth held in a certain way, they won, uh, a little superstitious kind of thing, I didn't have anything to do with it. But I looked for value and significance in rooting for that team. That's why we still have the letter jackets and the framed pictures of us with diplomats or congressmen or presidents. That's why you have that autograph that you got as a kid. That's why the diplomas up on the wall is you're making honest efforts to be significant. Bertrand Russell, a fatalistic atheist, once said, I believe that when I die, my bones will rot and nothing shall remain of me. Now, you know, the truth is, if that's what life came down to, it would be a sad existence. Amen? But fortunately, God says to Bertrand, you're flat wrong. Psalm 139. We're going to talk today about how conquering our fear of failure comes about, how that happens. And we're just going to look at a few things that come directly from Psalm 139. And the first thing is this, that God knows you. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. 
The first thing we see in this passage is that God knows you. I want you to see all that he knows about you. It says he knows, he searches me. He knows me. He knows when I sit and when I rise. He knows not only the external things, my movements, what I do, but he knows my internal stuff, my thoughts from afar. He knows when I go out and when I lie down. What you see in this passage is, first of all, and it's not going to be on the screen, you can write this down, is that God knows us completely. Completely. There is nothing about you that God does not know. Now, we know that. We've said that in church. Okay, God knows us. But when you think about the significance of that, that the God that created the very universe that we cannot measure, that we don't know its limits, that we don't know how big it is, we don't understand all that's out there, that has mysteries on this earth that we will never be able to solve, that God is so interested in you that he knows every detail about you. One of the things I've discovered in my life is I don't learn things about things I don't care about. Especially now. Now, when I was in school, I had to. Amen? You had to take the test. But I find that in my life now, I only learn the details of things that I care deeply about. And God knows you completely. Well, how completely? It tells us here, but in in the book of Matthew, he also says uh, this interesting phrase. He's talking about how significant you are. And he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Anybody here ever tried to count the hairs on your head? A couple of people. Anybody succeeded? Bald people do not count, all right? Like, none. That, that doesn't count. It's a very difficult thing. I, I just encourage you, and it's kind of a silly exercise, so most of you won't do it, but just go home and start trying, all right? Just ridiculous. It's like trying to count the stars in the night sky, right? It's just, you can't do it. But it says that God has numbered the hairs on your head. It's not just that he knows the number. There's a difference. It's not just that he understands how many, 412. You just had one fall out, 411. It's not that. It says he's numbered them. That's hair number 248,012. He's numbered them. He knows you completely. You have never had a thought. You have never had an action. You never had a moment that God wasn't aware of. And here's the thing. He knows the future. It says in this passage, it always blows my mind, that before I speak a word, he knows it. And he knew that I was going to think about the fact that he knew the word that I just spoke. And he knew that I was going to think about the fact that he knew that I knew that he knew that, you know, you got it? I don't either. It's just complete. Now, here's the thing. Not only does he love us completely, he loves us personally, individually. He goes on in this Matthew passage, and actually a little bit before this, and then continues after to talk about sparrows and pennies. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He's thinking of two insignificant things. Two sparrows are for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. There are some people that believe that God just kind of created the earth and just kind of said, there it goes, I'll just put it in motion. It tells us here that He knows when every sparrow falls to the ground. Now, in the book of Luke, they add a little different detail. Not only do we have the two sparrows sold for a penny, but Luke says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Now, think about this for a minute. How many sparrows do you get for one penny? Two. How many sparrows do you get for two pennies? Five, right? It's a bulk deal. Spend two pennies, get one sparrow free. 
So what happens is you just get an extra sparrow thrown in, and what it's saying is it's just that insignificant. Now, I'm not, I, this is kind of a side note, but I would dare to say that many of us sometimes feel like the fifth sparrow that just kind of gets kicked in for free, all right? Insignificant. But he says all of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. He knows you completely. He knows you personally. Now, here's the second thing which is also just important is that God pursues you. Verse 7. First of all, David says right before that in verse 6, that it's too one for me to even think about this. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea... Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What it means there is that God is constantly pursuing us. You see, one of the things that happens is when we first realize that God knows absolutely everything about us, He knows all our thoughts, all our actions, all our feelings, everything that could possibly be known about us, God knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. One of the first things that could happen in our hearts and our minds is to say, "Uh uh-oh. Because there are some thoughts and some actions and some things that have been happening in my life that have happened over the course of my life and that will happen in my life that I really hope nobody knows about. Amen? Now, be honest here. Amen? And it says that God knows those deepest, darkest secrets. And when God knows those deepest, darkest secrets, our first reaction when people find out the things we don't want them to find out is for us to hide. And David said, if I try to hide, I can't. I can't. I can go to the top of the mountains and you're there. I can go to the bottom of the depths, you're there. I can go to heaven, you're there. I can go wherever you I go, you are there. And what you see in this is that not only does God say you can't get away, the thing is He doesn't want you to get away. What this passage of Scripture tells me is that I am desirable to God. Luke 19 tells us that the reason he left heaven, the reason that he came to earth, was that he came to seek and to save what is lost. In the Old Testament and Psalms, it says that he calls the people that are people of God the apple of his eye. He calls us beloved, chosen, holy, dearly loved. You are wanted, desired, pursued by God. You remember what it was like the first time you felt wanted? desired, that somebody liked you for who you were. One of the things that, has, that, that interests our culture sometimes is that there are seeming mismatches in relationships. For instance, you'll find a very attractive young lady who is with a guy. Now, in the first service, we had some pointing. No pointing, all right? And you wonder... How in the world did those two ever get together? I mean, doesn't she see that she might get have better than that guy? All right? And what happens is that there are lots of complicating factors there, obviously, but part of it is that sometimes they want just to feel desired. The guy that comes along and does that fills that void. It doesn't have to be romantically. It could be just, you know, on the playground, that time when you actually get picked to be on the team and you're not the last one standing. I remember growing up that uh, I 
grew up with a brother that was five and a half years older in the neighborhood I grew up in. Most everybody else was older than me. And so I always wanted to play sports with the guys. And every day during the summer, we'd go down, we'd play baseball, and we'd, we'd uh, sit around, and, and they let me play with them, but they always gave me the same role. I was all-time catcher. You know, in football, you're all-time quarterback. That's a big deal. All-time catcher meant I got to wear the catcher gear all the time. They, didn't, they put me there because they didn't want me anywhere else. And, I, you know, when football season came, I was the yard marker. I'll just go stand over there and mark where the ball is right now. And I still remember, I, I still remember the day that my brother's friend that we played at his house, a guy named Greg, Greg walked up to me as I was coming up with my, uh, I never carried the catcher's mitt because they had one, but I had my glove in my hand. I always carried it just in case. And he came up to me and he said, Lyle, we think you're ready to play second base. And that was like I had just won the World Series of Rose Drive right there. The greatest thing, just to be desired. And it tells us here that while we look for external affirmations of being desired, that God always wants to be in a relationship with us. Here's the third thing. And then when God created you, He created a masterpiece. Verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. That's a very intimate description that He took time and prepared it and thought it out and knit you together. It says in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. It's just like, you know, we look up and we see the stars and we see all the mountains and we look at and go, man, God is awesome. Look what he made. And then we look at ourselves sometimes and we go, ugh. And scripture tells us that we are the pinnacle of creation. So instead of looking in the mirror and going, ugh, we need to look in the mirror and say, God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15 is an amazing verse. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. The idea there simply is that God is the one that creates us and shapes us and makes us uniquely one of a kind, you. I'll tell you something that, that, that flies, you know, it doesn't go in the face of, of science, but something that they're discovering is there's no such thing as identical twins. I'm not saying that their physical features aren't very similar, aren't exactly the same, but they've noticed that as identical twins grow up, they become less identical in the way they act. And so there are no people that are exactly like one another. And we need to understand that when God created us, He created us to be a certain person at a certain time with a certain task. And we are responsible for responding to that. In fact, verse 16 tells us the next thing. Not only are you a masterpiece of God, but that He has a specific plan for you. Verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. You know, we've had the opportunity now to, to see a couple of pictures of our, our baby girl um, as she's growing inside of Susan's body. And it's just an amazing thing to think that God already has a plan and number of days spread out for that little girl. From the moment 
that you are conceived. Your days are written. In fact, they're written before that. But God has a specific plan just for you. And let me tell you, the reason most people struggle with insignificance in their life is because they never figure that out. And the truth is, in a relationship with Jesus, you can know your significance, K-N-O-W. But without a relationship with Jesus, following God's plan, you have no N-O significance. And the reason we live in a world that seems daily to see more and more people grabbing, jumping, looking for significance is because they don't have that relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, the reason that we have churches filled with people that look just like the world in which we live, in which they try to wear the same clothes and do the same things and be the same people, is because they're reaching and searching for significance that you can only find in your relationship with Jesus and following His plan. And when you come to understand that God knows you, that He pursues you, that He goes after you, that He has a plan for you because you're a masterpiece of His and intended to be used for His glory, then it simply comes to the fact that you have a choice. One of the things I love about Psalm 139 is you get through all of that stuff that's great about who we are. And it's already know God knows us. God takes care of us. We know that God has created us. We know all of that. And then we get to Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and David turns to a prayer and says, Search me, O God, and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And it's almost like he makes the choice to say, God, it's now time for me to realize that you have this plan and I'm turning my life over to you. I don't know how you walked in here today. I don't know if you walked in feeling very significant and that God has has got a plan for and you're following that plan, or if you walked in and there are things in your life that make you feel like you're a failure or you're insignificant or you're not fitting in or you're not doing what you want or it feels like you're just kind of spinning your wheels and there's no significance in life. I don't know where you are, but I know this. That the only solution to real significance in your life is to follow the plan God has for you. 